Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Book 2, Chapter 16 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 16 Still Knitting. Madame Defarge and Monsieur, her husband, returned amicably to the bosom of Saint Antoine, while a speck in a blue cap toiled through the darkness and through the dust and down the weary miles of avenue by the wayside slowly tending towards that point of the compass where the chateau of monsieur the marquis now in his grave listened to the whispering trees such ample leisure had the stone faces now for listening to the trees and to the fountain that the few village scarecrows who in their quest for herbs to eat and fragments of dead stick to burn strayed within sight of the great stone courtyard and terrace stairway had it borne in upon their starved fancy that the expression of the faces was altered a rumour just lived in the village had a faint and bare existence there as its people had that when the knife struck home the faces changed from faces of pride to faces of anger and pain also that when that dangling figure was hauled up forty feet above the fountain they changed again and bore a cruel look of being avenged which they would henceforth bear for ever in the stone face above the great window of the bedchamber where the murder was done two fine dints were pointed out in the sculptured nose which everybody recognised and which nobody had seen of old and on the scarce occasions when two or three ragged peasants emerged from the crowd to take a hurried peep at monsieur the marquis petrified a skinny finger would not have pointed to them for a minute before they all started away among the moss and leaves like the more fortunate hares who could find a living there chateau and hut stone-faced and dangling figure the red stain on the stone floor and the pure water in the village well thousands of acres of land a whole province of france all france itself lay under the night sky concentrated into a faint hairbreadth line so does the whole world with all its greatnesses and littlenesses lie in a twinkling star and as mere human knowledge can split a ray of light and analyse the manner of its composition so sublimer intelligences may read in the feeble shining of this earth of ours every thought and act every vice and virtue of every responsible creature on it 
The Defarges, husband and wife, came lumbering under the starlight in their public vehicle to that gate of Paris whereunto their journey naturally tended. There was the usual stoppage at the barrier guardhouse, and the usual lanterns came glancing forth for the usual examination and inquiry. Monsieur Defarge alighted, knowing one or two of the soldiery there, and one of the police, the latter he was intimate with and affectionately embraced when saint antoine had again enfolded the defarges in his dusky wings and they having finally alighted near the saint's boundaries were picking their way on foot through the black mud and offal of his streets madame defarge spoke to her husband say then my friend what did jacques of the police tell thee very little to-night but all he knows there is another spy commissioned for our quarter there may be many more for all that he can say but he knows of one eh hey, well said madame defarge raising her eyebrows with a cool business air it is necessary to register him how do they call that man he is english so much the better his name Bassard said Defarge, making it French by pronunciation. But he had been so careful to get it accurately that he then spelt it with perfect correctness. Bassad, repeated Madame. Good. Christian name? John. John Bassad, repeated Madame, after murmuring it once to herself. Good. His appearance, is it known? age about forty years height about five feet nine black hair complexion dark generally rather handsome visage eyes dark face thin long and sallow nose aquiline but not straight having a peculiar inclination towards the left cheek expression therefore sinister eh hey, my face it is a portrait said madame laughing he shall be registered to-morrow they turned into the wine-shop, which was closed, for it was midnight, and where Madame Defarge immediately took her post at her desk, counted the small monies that had been taken during her absence, examined the stock, went through the entries in the book, made other entries of her own, checked the serving-man in every possible way, and finally dismissed him to bed. Then she turned out the contents of the bowl of money for the second time, and began knotting them up in her handkerchief, in a chain of separate knots for safe-keeping through the night. All this while Defarge, with his pipe in his mouth, walked up and down, complacently admiring, but never interfering, in which condition, indeed, as to the business and his domestic affairs, he walked up and down through life. The night was hot, and the shop, close, shut, and surrounded by so foul a neighbourhood, was ill-smelling. Monsieur Defarge's olfactory sense was by no means delicate, but the stock of wine smelt much stronger than it ever tasted, and so did the stock of rum and brandy and aniseed. He whiffed the compound of sense anyway as he put down his smoked-out pipe. "'You are fatigued,' said Madame, raising her glance as she knotted the money. "'There are only the usual odours.' "'I am a little tired,' her husband acknowledged. "'You are a little depressed, too,' said Madame, whose quick eyes had never been so intent on the accounts, but they had had a ray or two for him. "'Oh, the men, the men!' 
"'But, my dear,' began Defarge. "'But, my dear,' repeated Madame, nodding firmly, "'but, my dear, you are faint of heart to-night, my dear.' "'Well, then,' said Defarge, as if a thought were wrung out of his breast, "'it is a long time.' "'It is a long time,' repeated his wife. "'And when is it not a long time? "'Vengeance and retribution require a long time. "'It is the rule.' it does not take a long time to strike a man with lightning said defarge how long demanded madame composedly does it take to make and store the lightning tell me defarge raised his head thoughtfully as if there were something in that too it does not take a long time said madame for an earthquake to swallow a town eh well tell me how long it takes to repair the earthquake a long time, I suppose, said Defarge, but when it is ready it takes place and grinds to pieces everything before it. In the meantime it is always preparing, though it is not seen or heard. That is your consolation. Keep it. She tied a knot with flashing eyes, as if it throttled a foe. I tell thee, said Madame, extending her right hand for emphasis, that although it is a long time on the road, it is on the road and coming. I tell thee, it never retreats and never stops. I tell thee, it is always advancing. Look around and consider the lives of all the world that we know. Consider the faces of all the world that we know. Consider the rage and discontent to which the jacquerie addresses itself, with more and more of certainty every hour can such things last bah i mock you my brave wife returned lafarge standing before her with his head a little bent and his hands clasped at his back like a docile and attentive pupil before his catechist i do not question all this but it has lasted a long time and it is possible you know well my wife it is possible that it may not come during our lives eh well how then demanded madame tying another knot as if there were another enemy strangled well said defarge with a half complaining and half apologetic shrug we shall not see the triumph we shall have helped it returned madame with her extended hand in strong action nothing that we do is done in vain i believe with all my soul that we shall see the triumph but even if not even if i knew certainly not show me the neck of an aristocrat and tyrant and still i would then madame with her teeth set tied a very terrible knot indeed hold cried defarge reddening a little as if he felt charged with cowardice i too my dear will stop at nothing yes but it is your weakness that you sometimes need to see your victim and your opportunity to sustain you sustain yourself without that when the time comes let loose the tiger and the devil but wait for the time with the tiger and the devil chained not shown yet always ready madame enforced the conclusion of this piece of advice by striking her little counter with her chain of money as if she knocked its brains out and then gathering the heavy handkerchief under her arm in a serene manner and observing that it was time to go to bed
next noontide saw the admirable woman in her usual place in the wine-shop knitting away assiduously a rose lay beside her and if she now and then glanced at the flower it was with no infraction of her usual preoccupied air there were a few customers drinking or not drinking standing or seated sprinkled about the day was very hot and heaps of flies who were extending their inquisitive and adventurous perquisitions into all the glutinous little glasses near madame fell dead at the bottom their decease made no impression on the other flies out promenading who looked at them in the coolest manner as if they themselves were elephants or something as far removed until they met the same fate curious to consider how heedless flies are perhaps they thought as much at court that sunny summer day a figure entering at the door threw a shadow on madame defarge which she felt to be a new one she laid down her knitting and began to pin her rose in her headdress before she looked at the figure it was curious the moment madame defarge took up the rose the customers ceased talking and began gradually to drop out of the wine-shop good day madame said the newcomer good day monsieur she said it aloud but added to herself as she resumed her knitting ha good day age about forty height about five feet nine black hair generally rather handsome visage complexion dark eyes dark thin long and shallow face aquiline nose but not straight having a peculiar inclination towards the left cheek which imparts a sinister expression good day one and all have the goodness to give me a little glass of old cognac and a mouthful of cool fresh water madame madame complied with a polite air marvellous cognac this madame it was the first time it had ever been so complimented and madame defarge knew enough of its antecedents to know better she said however that the cognac was flattered and she took up her knitting the visitor watched her fingers for a few moments and took the opportunity of observing the place in general you knit with great skill madame i am accustomed to it a pretty pattern too you think so said madame looking at him with a smile decidedly may one ask what it is for pastime said madame still looking at him with a smile while her fingers moved nimbly not for use that depends i may find a use for it one day if i do well said madame drawing a breath and nodding her head with a stern kind of coquetry i'll use it it was remarkable but the taste of saint antoine seemed to be decidedly opposed to a rose on the headdress of madame defarge two men had entered separately and had been about to order drink when catching sight of that novelty they faltered made a pretence of looking about as if for some friend who was not there and went away nor of those who had been there when this visitor entered was there one left they had all dropped off the spy had kept his eyes open but had been able to detect no sign they had lounged away in a poverty-stricken purposeless accidental manner quite natural and unimpeachable john 
thought Madame, checking off her work as her fingers knitted, and her eyes looked at the stranger. Stay long enough, and I shall knit Barsad before you go. You have a husband, Madame? I have. Children? No children. Business seems bad? Business is very bad. The people are so poor. Ah, the unfortunate, miserable people, so oppressed too, as you say. As you say, Madame retorted, correcting him, and deftly knitting an extra something into his name that boded him no good. Pardon me, certainly it was I who said so, but you naturally think so, of course. I think, returned Madame in a high voice, I and my husband have enough to do to keep this wine-shop open without thinking. All we think here is how to live. That is the subject we think of, and it gives us from morning to night enough to think about, without embarrassing our heads concerning others. I think for others? No, no. The spy, who was there to pick up any crumbs he could find or make, did not allow his baffled state to express itself in his sinister face, but stood with an air of gossiping gallantry, leaning his elbow on Madame Defarge's little counter, and occasionally sipping his cognac. A bad business, this Madame of Gaspard's execution. Ah, the poor Gaspard, with a sigh of great compassion. My faith, returned Madame, coolly and lightly, if people use knives for such purposes, they have to pay for it. He knew beforehand what the price of his luxury was. He has paid the price. I believe, said the spy, dropping his soft voice to a tone that invited confidence, and expressing an injured revolutionary susceptibility in every muscle of his wicked face. I believe there is much compassion and anger in this neighbourhood touching the poor fellow and between ourselves. Is there? asked Madame vacantly. Is there not? Here is my husband, said Madame Defarge. As the keeper of the wine-shop entered at the door, the spy saluted him by touching his hat, and saying with an engaging smile, "'Good day, Jacques!' Defarge stopped short and stared at him. "'Good day, Jacques!' the spy repeated, with not quite so much confidence, or quite so easy a smile under the stare. "'You deceive yourself, monsieur,' returned the keeper of the wine-shop. "'You mistake me for another. That is not my name. I am Ernest Defarge.' "'It is all the same,' said the spy, airily, but discomfited, too. "'Good day.' "'Good day,' answered Defarge, dryly. "'I was saying to Madame, with whom I had the pleasure of chatting when you entered, that they tell me there is, and no wonder, much sympathy and anger in Saint-Antoine touching the unhappy fate of poor Gaspard.' "'No one has told me so,' said Defarge, shaking his head. "'I know nothing of it.' Having said it, he passed behind the little counter, and stood with his hand on the back of his wife's chair, looking over that barrier at the person to whom they were both opposed, and whom either of them would have shot with the greatest satisfaction. 
the spy well used to his business did not change his unconscious attitude but drained his little glass of cognac took a sip of fresh water and asked for another glass of cognac madame defarge poured it out for him took to her knitting again and hummed a little song over it you seem to know this quarter well that is to say better than i do observed defarge not at all but i hope to know it better i am so profoundly interested in its miserable inhabitants ha muttered defarge the pleasure of conversing with you monsieur defarge recalls to me pursued the spy that i have the honour of cherishing some interesting associations with your name indeed said defarge with much indifference yes indeed when dr manette was released you his old domestic had the charge of him i know he was delivered to you you see i am informed of the circumstances such is the fact certainly said defarge he had had it conveyed to him in an accidental touch of his wife's elbow as she knitted and warbled that he would do best to answer but always with brevity it was to you said the spy that his daughter came and it was from your care that his daughter took him accompanied by a neat brown monsieur how is he called in a little wig lorry of the bank of telson and company over to england such is the fact repeated defarge very interesting remembrances said the spy i have known dr manette and his daughter in england yes said defarge you don't hear much about them now said the spy no said defarge in effect madame struck in looking up from her work and her little song we never hear about them we received the news of their safe arrival and perhaps another letter or perhaps two but since then they have gradually taken their road in life we ours and we have held no correspondence perfectly so madame replied the spy she is going to be married going echoed madame she was pretty enough to have been married long ago you english are cold it seems to me oh you know i am english i perceive your tongue is returned madame and what the tongue is i suppose the man is he did not take the identification as a compliment but he made the best of it and turned it off with a laugh after sipping his cognac to the end he added yes miss manette is going to be married but not to an englishman to one who like herself is french by birth and speaking of gaspar ah poor gaspar it was cruel cruel it is a curious thing that she is going to marry the nephew of monsieur the marquis for whom gaspar was exalted to that height of so many feet in other words the present marquis but he lives unknown in england he is no marquis there he is mr charles darnay dolnay is the name of his mother's family madame defarge knitted steadily but the intelligence had a palpable effect upon her husband do what he would behind the little counter as to the striking of a light and the lighting of his pipe he was troubled and his hand was not trustworthy the spy would have been no spy if he had failed to see it or to record it in his mind 
Having made at least this one hit, whatever it might prove to be worth, and no customers coming in to help him to any other, Mr. Barsad paid for what he had drunk, and took his leave, taking occasion to say, in a genteel manner, before he departed, that he looked forward to the pleasure of seeing Monsieur and Madame Defarge again. For some minutes after he had emerged into the outer presence of Saint Antoine, the husband and wife remained exactly as he had left them, lest he should come back. "'Can it be true?' said Defarge, in a low voice, looking down at his wife as he stood smoking, with his hand on the back of her chair, what he has said of Mademoiselle Manette. "'As he has said it,' returned Madame, lifting her eyebrows a little, "'it is probably false, but it may be true.' "'If it is,' Defarge began, and stopped. "'If it is?' repeated his wife. "'And if it does come, while we live to see it triumph, "'I hope for her sake destiny will keep her husband out of France.' her husband's destiny said madame defarge with her usual composure will take him where he is to go and will lead him to the end that is to end him that is all i know but it is very strange now at least is it not very strange said defarge rather pleading with his wife to induce her to admit it that after all our sympathy for monsieur her father and herself her husband's name should be prescribed under your hand at this moment by the side of that infernal dogs who has just left us "'Stranger things than that will happen when it does come,' answered Madame. "'I have them both here of a certainty, and they are both here for their merits. That is enough.' She rolled up her knitting when she had said those words, and presently took the rose out of the handkerchief that was round about her head. Either Saint Antoine had an instinctive sense that the objectionable decoration was gone, or Saint Antoine was on the watch for its disappearance. Howbeit the saint took courage to lounge in very shortly afterwards, and the wine-shop recovered its habitual aspect. In the evening, at which season of all others Saint Antoine turned himself inside out, and sat on doorsteps and window-ledges, and came to the corners of vile streets and courts for a breath of air, Madame Defarge, with her work in her hand, was accustomed to pass from place to place, and from group to group. A missionary! There were many like her, such as the world would do well never to breed again. All the women knitted. They knitted worthless things, but the mechanical work was a mechanical substitute for eating and drinking. The hands moved for the jaws and the digestive apparatus. If the bony fingers had been still, the stomachs would have been more famine-pinched. But as the fingers went, the eyes went, and the thoughts, and as Madame Defarge moved on from group to group, all three went quicker and fiercer among every little knot of women that she had spoken with and left behind. Her husband smoked at his door, looking after her with admiration. A great woman, said he, a strong woman, a grand woman, a frightfully grand woman. Darkness closed around, and then came the ringing of church bells, 
and the distant beating of the military drums in the palace courtyard as the women sat knitting knitting darkness encompassed them another darkness was closing in assuredly when the church bells then ringing pleasantly in many an airy steeple over france should be melted into thundering cannon when the military drums should be beating to drown a wretched voice that night all potent as the voice of power and plenty freedom and life so much was closing in about the women who sat knitting knitting that they their very selves were closing in around a structure yet unbuilt where they were to sit knitting knitting counting dropping heads end of book two chapter sixteen Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book 2, Chapter 17 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 17, One Night never did the sun go down with a brighter glory on the quiet corner in soho than one memorable evening when the doctor and his daughter sat under the plane tree together never did the moon rise with a milder radiance over great london than on that night when it found them still seated under the tree and shone upon their faces through its leaves Lucy was to be married to-morrow. She had reserved this last evening for her father, and they sat alone under the plane-tree. "'You are happy, dear father?' "'Quite, my child.' They had said little, though they had been there a long time. When it was yet light enough to work and read, she had neither engaged herself in her usual work, nor had she read to him. She had employed herself in both ways, at his side under the tree, many and many a time, but this time was not quite like any other, and nothing could make it so. "'And I am very happy to-night, dear father. I am deeply happy in the love that heaven has so blessed, my love for Charles, and Charles' love for me. But, if my life were not to be still consecrated to you—' or if my marriage was so arranged as that it would part us even by the length of a few of these streets i should be more unhappy and self-reproachful now than i can tell you even as it is even as it were she could not command her voice in the sad moonlight she clasped him by the neck and laid her face upon his breast in the moonlight which is always sad as the light of the sun itself is as the light called human life is at its coming and going dearest dear can you tell me this last time that you feel quite quite sure no new affections of mine and no new duties of mine will ever interpose between us i know it well but do you know it in your own heart do you feel quite certain her father answered with a cheerful firmness of conviction he could scarcely have assumed. "'Quite sure, my darling. More than that,' he added, as he tenderly kissed her, "'my future is far brighter, Lucy, seen through your marriage, than it could have been, nay, than it ever was without it. If I could hope that, my father!' 
believe it love indeed it is so consider how natural and how plain it is my dear that it should be so you devoted and young cannot fully appreciate the anxiety i have felt that your life should not be wasted she moved her hand towards his lips but he took it in his and repeated the word wasted my child should not be wasted struck aside from the natural order of things for my sake your unselfishness cannot entirely comprehend how much my mind has gone on this but only ask yourself how could my happiness be perfect while yours was incomplete if i had never seen charles my father i should have been quite happy with you he smiled at her unconscious admission that she would have been unhappy without Charles, having seen him, and replied, My child, you did see him, and it is Charles. If it had not been Charles, it would have been another, or if it had been no other, I should have been the cause, and then the dark part of my life would have cast its shadow beyond myself, and would have fallen on you it was the first time except at the trial of her ever hearing him refer to the period of his suffering it gave her a strange a new sensation while his words were in her ears and she remembered it long afterwards see said the doctor of beauvais raising his hand towards the moon i have looked at her from my prison window when i could not bear her light i have looked at her when it has been such torture to me to think of her shining upon what i had lost that i have beaten my head against my prison walls i have looked at her in a state so done and lethargic that i have thought of nothing but the number of horizontal lines i could draw across her at the full and the number of perpendicular lines with which i could intersect them he added in his inward and pondering manner as he looked at the moon it was twenty either way i remember and the twentieth was difficult to squeeze in the strange thrill with which she heard him go back to that time deepened as he dwelt upon it but there was nothing to shock her in the manner of his reference he only seemed to contrast his present cheerfulness and felicity with the dire endurance that was over i have looked at her speculating thousands of times upon the unborn child from whom i had been rent whether it was alive whether it had been born alive or the poor mother's shock had killed it whether it was a son who would some day avenge his father there was a time in my imprisonment when my desire for vengeance was unbearable whether it was a son who would never know his father's story who might even live to weigh the possibility of his father's having disappeared of his own will and act whether it was a daughter who would grow to be a woman she drew closer to him and kissed his cheek and his hand i have pictured my daughter to myself as perfectly forgetful of me rather altogether ignorant of me and unconscious of me i have cast up the years of her age year after year i have seen her married to a man who knew nothing of my fate i have altogether perished from the remembrance of the living and in the next generation my place was a blank my father even to hear that you had such thoughts of a daughter who never existed strikes to my heart as if i had been that child you lucy 
it is out of the consolation and restoration you have brought to me that these remembrances arise and pass between us and the moon on this last night what did i say just now she knew nothing of you she cared nothing for you so but on other moonlight nights when the sadness and the silence have touched me in a different way have affected me with something as like a sorrowful sense of peace as any emotion that had pain for its foundations could i have imagined her as coming to me in my cell and leading me out into the freedom beyond the fortress i have seen her image in the moonlight often as i now see you except that i never held her in my arms it stood between the little grated window and the door but you understand that that was not the child i am speaking of the figure was not the the image the fancy no that was another thing it stood before my disturbed sense of sight but it never moved the phantom that my mind pursued was another and more real child of her outward appearance i know no more than that she was like her mother the other had that likeness too as you have but was not the same can you follow me lucy hardly i think i doubt you must have been a solitary prisoner to understand these perplexed distinctions his collected and calm manner could not prevent her blood from running cold as he thus tried to anatomize his old condition in that more peaceful state i have imagined her in the moonlight coming to me and taking me out to show me that the home of her married life was full of her loving remembrance of her lost father my picture was in her room and i was in her prayers her life was active cheerful useful but my poor history pervaded it all i was that child my father i was not half so good but in my love that was i and she showed me her children said the doctor of beauvais and they had heard of me and had been taught to pity me when they passed the prison of the state they kept far from its frowning walls and looked up at its bars and spoke in whispers she could never deliver me i imagined that she always brought me back after showing me such things but then blessed with the relief of tears i fell upon my knees and blessed her i am that child i hope my father oh my dear my dear will you bless me as fervently to-morrow lucy i recall these old troubles in the reason that i have to-night for loving you better than words can tell and thanking god for my great happiness my thoughts when they were wildest never rose near the happiness that i have known with you and that we have before us he embraced her solemnly commended her to heaven and humbly thanked heaven for having bestowed her on him by and by they went into the house there was no one bidden to the marriage but mr lorry there was even to be no bridesmaid but the gaunt miss pross the marriage was to make no change in their place of residence they had been able to extend it by taking to themselves the upper rooms formerly belonging to the apocryphal invisible lodger and they desired nothing more dr manette was very cheerful at the little supper they were only three at table and miss pross made the third he regretted that charles was not there 
was more than half disposed to object to the loving little plot that kept him away, and drank to him affectionately. So the time came for him to bid Lucy good-night, and they separated. But in the stillness of the third hour of the morning Lucy came downstairs again and stole into his room, not free from unshaped fears beforehand. All things, however, were in their places, all was quiet, and he lay asleep, his white hair picturesque on the untroubled pillow, and his hands lying quiet on the coverlet. She put her needless candle in the shadow at a distance, crept up to his bed, and put her lips to his, then leaned over him and looked at him. Into his handsome face the bitter waters of captivity had worn, but he covered up their tracks with a determination so strong that he held the mastery of them even in his sleep. A more remarkable face in its quiet, resolute, and guarded struggle with an unseen assailant was not to be beheld in all the wide dominions of sleep that night. She timidly laid her hand on his dear breast, and put up a prayer that she might ever be as true to him as her love aspired to be, and as his sorrows deserved. Then she withdrew her hand, and kissed his lips once more, and went away. So the sunrise came, and the shadows of the leaves of the plane-tree moved upon his face, as softly as her lips had moved in praying for him. End of Book 2, Chapter 17 Recording by Paul Adams www.yawnguy.com Book 2, Chapter 18 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams Chapter 18, Nine Days the marriage day was shining brightly, and they were ready outside the closed door of the doctor's room, where he was speaking with Charles Darnay. They were ready to go to church, the beautiful bride, Mr. Lorry, and Miss Pross, to whom the event, through a gradual process of reconcilement to the inevitable, would have been one of absolute bliss, but for the yet lingering consideration that her brother Solomon should have been the bridegroom. And so, said Mr. Lorry, who could not sufficiently admire the bride, and who had been moving round her to take in every point of her quiet, pretty dress, and so it was for this, my sweet Lucy, that I brought you across the channel, such a baby! Lord bless me! How little I thought what I was doing! How lightly I valued the obligation I was conferring on my friend Mr. Charles!' "'You didn't mean it,' remarked the matter-of-fact Miss Pross, "'and therefore how could you know it? Nonsense!' "'Really? Well, but don't cry,' said the gentle Mr. Lorry. "'I'm not crying,' said Miss Pross. "'You are.' "'I am my Pross?' By this time Mr. Lorry dared to be pleasant with her on occasion. "'You were just now. I saw you do it, and I don't wonder at it. Such a present of plate as you have made em is enough to bring tears into anybody's eyes. There's not a fork or a spoon in the collection,' said Miss Pross, "'that I didn't cry over last night after the box came, till I couldn't see it.' 
"'I am highly gratified,' said Mr. Lorry, "'though, upon my honour, I had no intention of rendering those trifling articles of remembrance invisible to any one. Dear me, this is an occasion that makes a man speculate on all he has lost. Dear, 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 to think that there might have been a Mrs. Lorry any time these fifty years almost.' "'Not at all from Miss Pross.' "'You think that there never might have been a Mrs. Lorry?' asked the gentleman of that name. Pooh, rejoined Miss Pross, you were a bachelor in your cradle. Well, observed Mr. Lorry, beamingly adjusting his little wig, that seems probable too. And you were cut out for a bachelor, pursued Miss Pross, before you were put in your cradle. Then, I think, said Mr. Lorry, that I was very unhandsomely dealt with, and that I ought to have had a voice in the selection of my pattern. Enough! Now, my dear Lucy, drawing his arm soothingly round her waist, I hear them moving in the next room, and Miss Pross and I, as two formal folks of business, are anxious not to lose the final opportunity of saying something to you that you wish to hear. You leave your good father, my dear, in hands as earnest and as loving as your own. He shall be taken every conceivable care of during the next fortnight, while you are in Warwickshire and thereabouts. Even Telson shall go to the wall, comparatively speaking, before him. And when, at the fortnight's end, he comes to join you and your beloved husband on your other fortnight's trip in Wales, you shall say that we have sent him to you in the best health and in the happiest frame. Now I hear somebody's step coming to the door. Let me kiss my dear girl with an old-fashioned bachelor blessing before somebody comes to claim his own." For a moment he held the fair face from him, to look at the well-remembered expression on the forehead, and then laid the bright golden hair against his little brown wig with a genuine tenderness and delicacy which, if such things be old-fashioned, were as old as Adam. The door of the doctor's room opened, and he came out with Charles Darnay. He was so deadly pale, which had not been the case when they went in together, that no vestige of colour was to be seen in his face. But in the composure of his manner he was unaltered, except that to the shrewd glance of Mr. Lorry it disclosed some shadowy indication that the old air of avoidance and dread had lately passed over him like a cold wind. He gave his arm to his daughter, and took her downstairs to the chariot which Mr. Lorry had hired in honour of the day. The rest followed in another carriage, and soon, in a neighbouring church where no strange eyes looked on, Charles Darnay and Lucy Manette were happily married. Besides the glancing tears that shone among the smiles of the little group when it was done, some diamonds, very bright and sparkling, glanced on the bride's hand, which were newly released from the dark obscurity of one of Mr. Lorry's pockets. They returned home to breakfast, and all went well, and in due course the golden hair that had mingled with the poor shoemaker's white locks in the Paris garret were mingled with them again in the morning sunlight, on the threshold of the door at parting. It was a hard parting, though it was not for long, 
but her father cheered her and said at last gently disengaging himself from her enfolding arms take her child she is yours and her agitated hand waved to them from a chaise window and she was gone the corner being out of the way of the idle and curious and the preparations having been very simple and few the doctor mr lorry and miss pross were left quite alone it was when they turned into the welcome shade of the cool old hall that mr lorry observed a great change to have come over the doctor as if the golden arm uplifted there had struck him a poisoned blow he had naturally repressed much and some revulsion might have been expected in him when the occasion for repression was gone but it was the old scared lost look that troubled mr lorry and through his absent manner of clasping his head and drearily wandering away into his own room when they got upstairs mr lorry was reminded of defarge the wine-shop keeper and the starlight ride i think he whispered to miss pross after anxious consideration i think we had best not speak to him just now or at all disturb him i must look in at tellson's so i will go there at once and come back presently then we will take him a ride into the country and dine there and all will be well it was easier for mr lorry to look in at tellson's than to look out of tellson's he was detained two hours when he came back he ascended the old staircase alone having asked no question of the servant going thus into the doctor's rooms he was stopped by a low sound of knocking good god he said with a start what's that miss pross with a terrified face was at his ear oh me oh me all is lost cried she wringing her hands what is to be told to ladybird he doesn't know me and is making shoes mr lorry said what he could to calm her and went himself into the doctor's room the bench was turned towards the light as it had been when he had seen the shoemaker at his work before and his head was bent down and he was very busy dr manette my dear friend dr manette the doctor looked at him for a moment half inquiringly half as if he were angry at being spoken to and bent over his work again he had laid aside his coat and waistcoat his shirt was open at the throat as it used to be when he did that work and even the old haggard faded surface of face had come back to him he worked hard impatiently as if in some sense of having been interrupted mr lorry glanced at the work in his hand and observed that it was a shoe of the old size and shape he took up another that was lying by him and asked what it was a young lady's walking-shoe he muttered without looking up it ought to have been finished long ago let it be but dr manette look at me he obeyed in the old mechanically submissive manner without pausing in his work you know me my dear friend think again this is not your proper occupation think dear friend nothing would induce him to speak more he looked up for an instant at a time when he was requested to do so but no persuasion would extract a word from him he worked 
and worked and worked in silence and words fell on him as they would have fallen on an echoless wall or on the air the only ray of hope that mr lorry could discover was that he sometimes furtively looked up without being asked in that there seemed a faint expression of curiosity or perplexity as though he were trying to reconcile some doubts in his mind two things at once impressed themselves on mr lorry as important above all others the first that this must be kept secret from lucy the second that it must be kept secret from all who knew him in conjunction with miss pross he took immediate steps towards the latter precaution by giving out that the doctor was not well and required a few days of complete rest in aid of the kind deception to be practised on his daughter miss pross was to write describing his having been called away professionally and referring to an imaginary letter of two or three hurried lines in his own hand represented to have been addressed to her by the same post these measures advisable to be taken in any case mr lorry took in the hope of his coming to himself if that should happen soon he kept another course in reserve which was to have a certain opinion that he thought the best on the doctor's case in the hope of his recovery and of resort to this third course being thereby rendered practicable mr lorry resolved to watch him attentively with as little appearance as possible of doing so he therefore made arrangements to absent himself from Telson's for the first time in his life, and took his post by the window in the same room. He was not long in discovering that it was worse than useless to speak to him, since, on being pressed, he became worried. He abandoned that attempt on the first day, and resolved merely to keep himself always before him as a silent protest against the delusion into which he had fallen, or was falling. He remained, therefore, in his seat near the window, reading and writing, and expressing in as many pleasant and natural ways as he could think of that it was a free place. Dr. Manette took what was given him to eat and drink, and worked on that first day until it was too dark to see. Worked on half an hour after Mr. Lorry could not have seen for his life to read or write. When he put his tools aside as useless, until morning, Mr. Lorry rose and said to him, "'Will you go out?' He looked down at the floor on either side of him in the old manner, looked up in the old manner, and repeated in the old, low voice, "'Out?' "'Yes, for a walk with me. Why not?' he made no effort to say why not and said not a word more but mr lorry thought he saw as he leaned forward on his bench in the dusk with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands that he was in some misty way asking himself why not the sagacity of the man of business perceived an advantage here and determined to hold it miss pross and he divided the night into two watches and observed him at intervals from the adjoining room he paced up and down for a long time before he lay down but when he did finally lay himself down he fell asleep in the morning he was up betimes and went straight to his bench and to work 
On this second day Mr. Lorry saluted him cheerfully by his name, and spoke to him on topics that had been of late familiar to them. He returned no reply, but it was evident that he heard what was said, and that he thought about it, however confusedly. This encouraged Mr. Lorry to have Miss Pross in with her work several times during the day. At those times they quietly spoke of Lucy, and of her father then present, precisely in the usual manner, and as if there was nothing amiss. This was done without any demonstrative accompaniment, not long enough or often enough to harass him, and it lightened Mr. Lorry's friendly heart to believe that he looked up oftener, and that he appeared to be stirred by some perception of inconsistencies surrounding him. When it fell dark again, Mr. Lorry asked him as before, "'Dear doctor, will you go out?' As before, he repeated, out? Yes, for a walk with me. Why not? This time Mr. Lorry feigned to go out when he could extract no answer from him, and after remaining absent for an hour, returned. In the meanwhile the doctor had removed to the seat in the window, and had sat there looking down at the plane-tree, but on Mr. Lorry's return he slipped away to his bench. The time went very slowly on, and Mr. Lorry's hope darkened, and his heart grew heavier again, and grew yet heavier and heavier every day. The third day came and went, the fourth, the fifth, five days, six days, seven days, eight days, nine days. With a hope ever darkening, and with a heart always growing heavier and heavier, Mr. Lorry passed through this anxious time. The secret was well kept, and Lucy was unconscious and happy. But he could not fail to observe that the shoemaker, whose hand had been a little out at first, was growing dreadfully skilful, and that he had never been so intent on his work, and that his hands had never been so nimble and expert as in the dusk of the ninth evening. End of Book Two, Chapter Eighteen. Recording by Paul Adams www.yawnguy.com Book 2, Chapter 19 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams Chapter 19, An Opinion Worn out by anxious watching, Mr. Lorry fell asleep at his post. On the tenth morning of his suspense, he was startled by the shining of the sun into the room where a heavy slumber had overtaken him when it was dark night. He rubbed his eyes and roused himself, but he doubted, when he had done so, whether he was not still asleep. For, going to the door of the doctor's room and looking in, he perceived that the shoemaker's bench and tools were put aside again, and that the doctor himself sat reading at the window. He was in his usual morning dress, and his face, which Mr. Lorry could distinctly see, though still very pale, was calmly studious and attentive. Even when he had satisfied himself that he was awake, Mr. Lorry felt giddily uncertain for some few moments whether the late shoemaking might not be a disturbed dream of his own, 
for did not his eyes show him his friend before him in his accustomed clothing and aspect and employed as usual and was there any sign within their range that the change of which he had so strong an impression had actually happened it was but the inquiry of his first confusion and astonishment the answer being obvious if the impression were not produced by a real corresponding and sufficient cause how came he jarvis lorry there how came he to have fallen asleep in his clothes on the sofa in dr manette's consulting-room and to be debating these points outside the doctor's bedroom door in the early morning within a few minutes miss pross stood whispering at his side if he had had any particle of doubt left her talk would of necessity have resolved it but he was by that time clear-headed and had none he advised that they should let the time go by until the regular breakfast hour and then they should meet the doctor as if nothing unusual had occurred if he appeared to be in his customary state of mind mr lorry would then cautiously proceed to seek direction and guidance from the opinion he had been in his anxiety so anxious to obtain miss pross submitting herself to his judgment the scheme was worked out with care having abundance of time for his usual methodical toilette mr lorry presented himself at the breakfast hour in his usual white linen and with his usual neat leg the doctor was summoned in the usual way and came to breakfast so far as it was possible to comprehend him without overstepping those delicate and gradual approaches which mr lorry felt to be the only safe advance he at first supposed that his daughter's marriage had taken place yesterday an incidental allusion purposely thrown out to the day of the week and the day of the month set him thinking and counting and evidently made him uneasy in all other respects however he was so composedly himself that mr lorry determined to have the aid he sought and that aid was his own therefore when the breakfast was done and cleared away and he and the doctor were left together mr lorry said feelingly my dear manette i am anxious to have your opinion in confidence on a very curious case in which i am deeply interested that is to say it is very curious to me perhaps to your better information it may be less so glancing at his hands which were discoloured by his late work the doctor looked troubled and listened attentively he had already glanced at his hands more than once dr manette said mr lorry touching him affectionately on the arm the case is the case of a particularly dear friend of mine pray give your mind to it and advise me well for his sake and above all for his daughters his daughters my dear manette if i understand said the doctor in a subdued tone some mental shock yes be explicit said the doctor spare no detail mr lorry saw that they understood one another and proceeded 
my dear manette it is the case of an old and a prolonged shock of great acuteness and severity to the affections the feelings the the as you express it the mind the mind it is the case of a shock under which the sufferer was borne down one cannot say for how long because i believe he cannot calculate the time himself and there are no other means of getting at it it is the case of a shock from which the sufferer recovered by a process that he cannot trace himself as i once heard him publicly relate in a striking manner it is the case of a shock from which he has recovered so completely as to be a highly intelligent man capable of close application of mind and great exertion of body and of constantly making fresh additions to his stock of knowledge which was already very large but unfortunately there has been he paused and took a deep breath a slight relapse the doctor in a low voice asked of how long duration nine days and nights how did it show itself i infer glancing at his hands again in the resumption of some old pursuit connected with the shock that is the fact now did you ever see him asked the doctor distinctly and collectedly though in the same low voice engaged in that pursuit originally once and when the relapse fell on him was he in most respects or in all respects as he was then i think in all respects you spoke of his daughter does his daughter know of the relapse no it has been kept from her and i hope will always be kept from her it is known only to myself and to one other who may be trusted the doctor grasped his hand and murmured that was very kind that was very thoughtful mr lorry grasped his hand in return and neither of the two spoke for a little while now my dear manette said mr lorry at length in his most considerate and most affectionate way i am a mere man of business and unfit to cope with such intricate and difficult matters i do not possess the kind of information necessary i do not possess the kind of intelligence i want guiding there is no man in this world on whom i could rely for right guidance as on you tell me how does this relapse come about is there danger of another could a repetition of it be prevented how should a repetition of it be treated how does it come about at all what can i do for my friend no man ever can have been more desirous in his heart to serve a friend than i am to serve mine if i knew how but i don't know how to originate in such a case if your sagacity knowledge and experience could put me on the right track i might be able to do so much unenlightened and undirected i can do so little pray discuss it with me pray enable me to see it a little more clearly and teach me how to be a little more useful dr manette sat meditating after these earnest words were spoken and mr lorry did not press him i think it probable said the doctor breaking silence with an effort that the relapse you have described my dear friend was not quite unforeseen by its subject was it dreaded by him mr lorry ventured to ask very much he said it with an involuntary shudder 
you have no idea how such an apprehension weighs on the sufferer's mind and how difficult how almost impossible it is for him to force himself to utter a word upon the topic that oppresses him would he asked mr lorry be sensibly relieved if he could prevail upon himself to impart that secret brooding to any one when it is on him i think so but it is as i have told you next to impossible i even believe it in some cases to be quite impossible now said mr lorry gently laying his hand on the doctor's arm again after a short silence on both sides to what would you refer this attack i believe returned dr manette that there had been a strong and extraordinary revival of the train of thought and remembrance that was the first cause of the malady some intense associations of a most distressing nature were vividly recalled i think it is probable that there had long been a dread lurking in his mind that those associations would be recalled say under certain circumstances say on a particular occasion he tried to prepare himself in vain perhaps the effort to repair himself made him less able to bear it would he remember what took place in the relapse asked mr lorry with natural hesitation the doctor looked desolately round the room shook his head and answered in a low voice not at all now as to the future hinted mr lorry as to the future said the doctor recovering firmness i should have great hope as it pleased heaven in its mercy to restore him so soon i should have great hope he yielding under the pressure of a complicated something long dreaded and long vaguely foreseen and contended against and recovering after the cloud had burst and passed i should hope that the worst was over well well that's good comfort i am thankful said mr lorry i am thankful repeated the doctor bending his head with reverence there are two other points said mr lorry on which i am anxious to be instructed i may go on you cannot do your friend a better service the doctor gave him his hand to the first then he is of a studious habit and unusually energetic he applies himself with great ardour to the acquisition of professional knowledge to the conducting of experiments to many things now does he do too much i think not it may be the character of his mind to be always in singular need of occupation that may be in part natural to it in part the result of affliction the less it was occupied with healthy things the more it would be in danger of turning in the unhealthy direction he may have observed himself and made the discovery you are sure that he is not under too great a strain i think i am quite sure of it my dear manette if he were overworked now my dear lorry i doubt if that could easily be there has been a violent stress in one direction and it needs a counterweight excuse me as a persistent man of business assuming for a moment that he was overworked it would show itself in some renewal of this disorder i do not think so i do not think 
said Dr. Manette, with the firmness of self-conviction, that anything but the one train of association would renew it. I think that henceforth nothing but some extraordinary jarring of that cord could renew it. After what has happened, and after his recovery, I find it difficult to imagine any such violent sounding of that string again. I trust, and I almost believe, that the circumstances likely to renew it are exhausted." He spoke with the diffidence of a man who knew how slight a thing would overset the delicate organization of the mind, and yet with the confidence of a man who had slowly won his assurance out of personal endurance and distress. It was not for his friend to abate that confidence. He professed himself more relieved and encouraged than he really was, and approached his second and last point. He felt it to be the most difficult of all, but, remembering his old Sunday morning conversation with Miss Pross, and remembering what he had seen in the last nine days, he knew that he must face it. The occupation resumed under the influence of this passing affliction, so happily recovered from, said Mr. Lorry, clearing his throat, we will call <clears throat> blacksmith's work, blacksmith's work. We will say, to put a case, and for the sake of illustration, that he had been used in his bad time to work at a little forge. We will say that he was unexpectedly found at his forge again. Is it not a pity that he should keep it by him? The doctor shaded his forehead with his hand and beat his foot nervously on the ground. "'He has always kept it by him,' said Mr. Lorry, with an anxious look at his friend. "'Now, would it not be better that he should let it go?' Still the doctor, with shaded forehead, beat his foot nervously on the ground. "'You do not find it easy to advise me?' said Mr. Lorry. I quite understand it to be a nice question, and yet I think—and there he shook his head and stopped. "'You see,' said Dr. Manette, turning to him after an uneasy pause, "'it is very hard to explain consistently the innermost workings of this poor man's mind. He once yearned so frightfully for that occupation, and it was so welcome when it came, no doubt it relieved his pain so much by substituting the perplexity of the fingers for the perplexity of the brain, and by substituting, as he became more practised, the ingenuity of the hands for the ingenuity of the mental torture.' that he has never been able to bear the thought of putting it quite out of his reach. Even now, when I believe he is more hopeful of himself than he has ever been, and even speaks of himself with a kind of confidence, the idea that he might need that old employment and not find it gives him a sudden sense of terror, like that which one may fancy strikes to the heart of a lost child. He looked like his illustration as he raised his eyes to Mr. Lorry's face. But may not mind, I ask for information as a plodding man of business who only deals with such material objects as guineas, shillings, and banknotes. May not the retention of the thing involve the retention of the idea? If the thing were gone, my dear Manette, might not the fear go with it? In short, is it not a concession to the misgiving to keep the forge? There was another silence. You see, too, said the doctor, tremulously, 
It is such an old companion. I would not keep it, said Mr. Lorry, shaking his head, for he gained in firmness as he saw the doctor disquieted. I would recommend him to sacrifice it. I only want your authority. I am sure it does no good. Come, give me your authority, like a dear good man, for his daughter's sake, my dear Manette. Very strange to see what a struggle there was within him. In her name, then, let it be done. I sanction it, but I would not take it away while he was present. Let it be removed when he is not there. Let him miss his old companion after an absence. Mr. Lorry readily engaged for that, and the conference was ended. They passed the day in the country, and the doctor was quite restored. On the three following days he remained perfectly well, and on the fourteenth day he went away to join Lucy and her husband. The precaution that had been taken to account for his silence, Mr. Lorry had previously explained to him, and he had written to Lucy in accordance with it, and she had no suspicions. On the night of the day on which he left the house, Mr. Lorry went into his room with a chopper, saw, chisel, and hammer, attended by Miss Pross carrying a light. There, with closed doors and in a mysterious and guilty manner, Mr. Lorry hacked the shoemaker's bench to pieces, while Miss Pross held the candle as if she were assisting at a murder, for which, indeed, in her grimness she was no unsuitable figure. The burning of the body, previously reduced to pieces convenient for the purpose, was commenced without delay in the kitchen fire, and the tools, shoes, and leather were buried in the garden. So wicked do destruction and secrecy appear to honest minds that Mr. Lorry and Miss Pross, while engaged in the commission of their deed and in the removal of its traces, almost felt and almost looked like accomplices in a horrible crime. End of Book Two, Chapter Nineteen. Recording by Paul Adams. www.yongai.com. Book Two, Chapter Twenty of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Twenty. A Plea. When the newly married pair came home, the first person who appeared to offer his congratulations was Sidney Carton. They had not been at home many hours when he presented himself. He was not improved in habits, or in looks, or in manner, but there was a certain rugged air of fidelity about him which was new to the observation of Charles Darnay. He watched his opportunity of taking Darnay aside into a window, and of speaking to him when no one overheard. "'Mr. Darnay,' said Carton, "'I wish we might be friends. We are already friends, I hope. You are good enough to say so as a fashion of speech, but I don't mean any fashion of speech. Indeed, when I say I wish we might be friends, I scarcely mean quite that either.' Charles Darnay, as was natural, asked him, in all good humour and good fellowship, what he did mean. "'Upon my life,' said Carton, smiling, "'I find that easier to comprehend in my own mind than to convey to yours. However, let me try. 
You remember a certain famous occasion when I was more drunk than, than usual? I remember a certain famous occasion when you forced me to confess that you had been drinking. I remember it too. The curse of those occasions is heavy upon me, for I always remember them. I hope it may be taken into account one day, when all days are not an end for me. Don't be alarmed. I am not going to preach. I am not at all alarmed. Earnestness in you is anything but alarming to me. Ah, said Carton, with a careless wave of his hand, as if he waved that away. On the drunken occasion in question, one of a large number, as you know, I was insufferable about liking you, and not liking you. I wish you would forget it. I forgot it long ago. Fashion of speech again. But, Mr. Darnay, oblivion is not so easy to me as you represent it to be to you. I have by no means forgotten it, and a light answer does not help me to forget it. If it was a light answer, returned Darnay, I beg your forgiveness for it. I had no other object than to turn a slight thing, which, to my surprise, seems to trouble you too much, aside. I declare to you, on the faith of a gentleman, that I have long dismissed it from my mind. Good heaven, what was there to dismiss? Have I nothing more important to remember in the great service you rendered me that day? As to the great service, said Carton, I am bound to avow to you, when you speak of it in that way, that it was mere professional claptrap. I don't know that I cared what became of you when I rendered it. Mind! I say when I rendered it, I am speaking of the past. You make light of the obligation, returned Darnay, but I will not quarrel with your light answer. Genuine truth, Mr. Darnay, trust me, I have gone aside from my purpose. I was speaking about our being friends. Now, you know me, you know I am incapable of all the higher and better flights of men. If you doubt it, ask Striver, and he'll tell you so. I prefer to form my own opinion without the aid of his. Well, at any rate, you know me as a dissolute dog who has never done any good and never will. I don't know that you never will, but I do, and you must take my word for it. Well, if you could endure to have such a worthless fellow, and a fellow of such indifferent reputation, coming and going at odd times, I should ask that I might be permitted to come and go as a privileged person here, that I might be regarded as a useless, and I would add, if it were not for the resemblance I detected between you and me, an unornamental piece of furniture, tolerated for its old service, and taken no notice of. I doubt if I should abuse the permission. It is a hundred to one if I should avail myself of it four times in a year. It would satisfy me, I dare say, to know that I had it. Will you try? That is another way of saying that I am placed on the footing I have indicated. I thank you, Darnay. I may use that freedom with your name? I think so, Carton, by this time. They shook hands upon it, and Sidney turned away. Within a minute afterwards he was, to all outward appearance, as unsubstantial as ever. 
when he was gone and in the course of an evening passed with miss pross the doctor and mr lorry charles darnay made some mention of this conversation in general terms and spoke of sydney carton as a problem of carelessness and recklessness he spoke of him in short not bitterly or meaning to bear hard upon him but as anybody might who saw him as he showed himself he had no idea that this could dwell in the thoughts of his fair young wife but when he afterwards joined her in their own rooms he found her waiting for him with the old pretty lifting of the forehead strongly marked we are thoughtful to-night said darnay drawing his arm about her yes dearest charles with her hands on his breast and the inquiring and attentive expression fixed upon him we are rather thoughtful to-night for we have something on our mind to-night what is it my lucy will you promise not to press one question on me if i beg you not to ask it will i promise what will i not promise to my love what indeed with his hand putting aside the golden hair from the cheek and his other hand against the heart that beat for him i think charles poor mr carton deserves more consideration and respect than you expressed for him to-night indeed my own why so that is what you are not to ask me but i think i know he does if you know it it is enough what would you have me do my life i would ask you dearest to be very generous with him always and very lenient on his faults when he is not by i would ask you to believe that he has a heart he very very seldom reveals and that there are deep wounds in it my dear i have seen it bleeding it is a painful reflection to me said charles darnay quite astounded that i should have done him any wrong i never thought this of him my husband it is so i fear he is not to be reclaimed there is scarcely a hope that anything in his character or fortunes is repairable now but i am sure that he is capable of good things gentle things even magnanimous things she looked so beautiful in the purity of her faith in this lost man that her husband could have looked at her as she was for hours and oh my dearest love she urged clinging nearer to him laying her head upon his breast and raising her eyes to his remember how strong we are in our happiness and how weak he is in his misery the supplication touched him home i will always remember it dear heart i will remember it as long as i live he bent over the golden head and put the rosy lips to his and folded her in his arms if one forlorn wanderer then pacing the dark streets could have heard her innocent disclosure and could have seen the drops of pity kissed away by her husband from the soft blue eyes so loving of that husband he might have cried to the night and the words would not have parted from his lips for the first time god bless her for her sweet compassion end of book two chapter twenty recording by paul adams www.yawnguy.com
Book two, chapter twenty one of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter twenty one Echoing Footsteps. A wonderful corner for echoes, it has been remarked, that corner where the doctor lived. Ever busily winding the golden thread which bound her husband, and her father, and herself, and her old directress and companion, in a life of quiet bliss, Lucy sat in the still house, in the tranquilly resounding corner, listening to the echoing footsteps of years. At first there were times, though she was a perfectly happy young wife, when her work would slowly fall from her hands, and her eyes would be dimmed. For there was something coming in the echoes, something light, afar off, and scarcely audible yet, that stirred her heart too much. Fluttering hopes and doubts, hopes of a love as yet unknown to her, doubts of her remaining upon earth to enjoy that new delight, divided her breast. Among the echoes, then, there would arise the sound of footsteps at her own early grave and thoughts of the husband who would be left so desolate and who would mourn for her so much swelled to her eyes and broke like waves that time passed and her little lucy lay on her bosom then among the advancing echoes there was the tread of her tiny feet and the sound of her prattling words let greater echoes resound as they would the young mother at the cradle-side could always hear those coming they came and the shady house was sunny with a child's laugh and the divine friend of children to whom in her trouble she had confided hers seemed to take her child in his arms as he took the child of old and made it a sacred joy to her ever busily winding the golden thread that bound them all together weaving the service of her happy influence through the tissue of all their lives and making it predominate nowhere lucy heard in the echoes of years none but friendly and soothing sounds her husband's step was strong and prosperous among them her father's firm and equal lo miss pross in harness of string awakening the echoes as an unruly charger whip-corrected snorting and pawing the earth under the plane-tree in the garden even when there were sounds of sorrow among the rest they were not harsh nor cruel even when golden hair like her own lay in a halo on a pillow round the worn face of a little boy and he said with a radiant smile dear papa and mamma i am very sorry to leave you both and to leave my pretty sister but i am called and i must go those were not tears all of agony that wetted his young mother's cheek as the spirit departed from her embrace that had been entrusted to it suffer them and forbid them not they see my father's face o oh, father blessed words thus the rustling of an angel's wings got blended with the other echoes and they were not wholly of earth but had in them that breath of heaven sighs of the winds that blew over a little garden tomb were mingled with them also and both were audible to lucy in a hushed murmur like the breathing of a summer sea asleep upon a sandy shore 
as the little Lucy, comically studious at the task of the morning, or dressing a doll at her mother's footstool, chattered in the tongues of the two cities that were blended in her life. The echoes rarely answered to the actual tread of Sidney Carton. Some half-dozen times a year, at most, he claimed his privilege of coming in uninvited, and would sit among them through the evening as he had once done often. He never came there heated with wine. And one other thing regarding him was whispered in the echoes, which has been whispered by all true echoes for ages and ages. No man ever really loved a woman, lost her, and knew her, with a blameless, though an unchanged mind, when she was a wife and a mother, but her children had a strange sympathy with him, an instinctive delicacy of pity for him. What fine hidden sensibilities are touched in such a case, no echoes tell. But it is so, and it was so here. Carton was the first stranger to whom little Lucy held out her chubby arms, and he kept his place with her as she grew. The little boy had spoken of him almost at the last. Poor Carton, kiss him for me. Mr. Stryver shouldered his way through the law, like some great engine forcing itself through turbid water, and dragged his useful friend in his wake like a boat towed astern. As the boat so favoured is usually in a rough plight, and mostly under water, so Sidney had a swamped life of it. But easier and strong custom, unhappily so much easier and stronger in him than any stimulating sense of desert or disgrace, made it the life he was to lead, and he no more thought of emerging from his state of lion's jackal than any real jackal may be supposed to think of rising to be a lion. Striver was rich, had married a florid widow with property and three boys, who had nothing particularly shining about them but the straight hair of their dumpling heads. These three young gentlemen, Mr. Striver, exuding patronage of the most offensive quality from every poor, had walked before him like three sheep to the quiet corner in Soho, and had offered as pupils to lose his husband delicately saying hello here are three lumps of bread and cheese towards your matrimonial picnic darnay the polite rejection of the three lumps of bread and cheese had quite bloated mr strive with an indignation which he afterwards turned to account in the training of the young gentlemen by directing them to beware of the pride of beggars like that tutor fellow he was also in the habit of declaiming to Mrs. Stryver, over his full-bodied wine, on the arts Mrs. Darnay had once put in practice to catch him, and on the diamond-cut diamond arts in himself, madam, which had rendered him not to be caught. Some of his King's Bench familiars, who were occasionally parties to the full-bodied wine and the lie, excused him for the latter by saying that he had told it so often that he believed it himself, which is surely such an incorrigible aggravation of an originally bad offence as to justify any such offenders being carried off to some suitably retired spot, and there hanged out of the way. There were among the echoes to which Lucy, sometimes pensive, sometimes amused and laughing, listened in the echoing corner, until her little daughter was six years old. 
how near to her heart the echoes of her child's tread came and those of her own dear fathers always active and self-possessed and those of her dear husbands need not be told nor how the lightest echo of their united home directed by herself with such a wise and elegant thrift that it was more abundant than any waste was music to her nor how there were echoes all about her sweet in her ears of the many times her father had told her that he found her more devoted to him married if that could be than single and of the many times her husband had said to her that no cares and duties seemed to divide her love for him or her help to him and asked her what is the magic secret my darling of your being everything to all of us as if there were only one of us yet never seeming to be hurried or to have too much to do but there were other echoes from a distance that rumbled menacingly in the corner all through the space of time and it was now about little lucy's sixth birthday that they began to have an awful sound as of a great storm in france with a dreadful sea rising on a night in mid-july one thousand seven hundred and eighty-nine mr lorry came in late from Telson's, and sat himself down by Lucy and her husband in the dark window. It was a hot, wild night, and they were all three reminded of the old Sunday night when they had looked at the lightning from the same place. "'I began to think,' said Mr. Lorry, pushing his brown wig back, "'that I should have to pass the night at Telson's. We have been so full of business all day that we have not known what to do first, or which way to turn.' there is such an uneasiness in paris that we have actually a run of confidence upon us our customers over there seem not to be able to confide their property to us fast enough there is positively a mania among some of them for sending it to england that has a bad look said darnay a bad look you say my dear darnay yes but we don't know what reason there is in it people are so unreasonable some of us at tellson's are getting old and we really can't be troubled out of the ordinary course without due occasion still said darnay you know how gloomy and threatening the sky is i know that to be sure assented mr lorry trying to persuade himself that his sweet temper was soured and that he grumbled but i am determined to be peevish after my long day's botheration where is manette here he is said the doctor entering the dark room at the moment i am quite glad you are at home for these hurries and forebodings by which i have been surrounded all day long have made me nervous without reason you are not going out i hope no i am going to play backgammon with you if you like said the doctor i don't think i do like if i may speak my mind i am not fit to be pitted against you to-night is the tea-board still there lucy i can't see of course it has been kept for you thank ye my dear the precious child is safe in bed and sleeping soundly that's right all safe and well i don't know why anything should be otherwise than safe and well here thank god but i have been so put out all day and i am not as young as i was my tea my dear thank ye 
Now, come and take your place in the circle, and let us sit quiet and hear the echoes about which you have your theory. Not a theory, it was a fancy. A fancy, then, my wise pet, said Mr. Lorry, patting her hand. They are very numerous and very loud, though, are they not? Only hear them. Headlong, mad, and dangerous footsteps to force their way into anybody's life, footsteps not easily made clean again, if once stained red, the footsteps raging in Saint-Antoine afar off as the little circle sat in the dark London window. Saint-Antoine had been that morning a vast dusky mass of scarecrows, heaving to and fro, with frequent gleams of light above the billowy heads, where steel blades and bayonets shone in the sun. A tremendous roar arose from the throat of Saint-Antoine, and a forest of naked arms struggled in the air like shriveled branches of trees in a winter wind, all the fingers convulsively clutching at every weapon or semblance of a weapon that was thrown up from the depths below, no matter how far off. Who gave them out, whence they last came, where they began, through what agency they crookedly quivered and jerked, scores at a time, over the heads of the crowd, like a kind of lightning, no eye in the throng could have told, but muskets were being distributed, so were cartridges, powder and ball, bars of iron and wood, knives, axes, pikes, every weapon that distracted ingenuity could discover or devise. People who could lay hold of nothing else set themselves with bleeding hands to force stones and bricks out of their places in walls. Every pulse and heart in Saint Antoine was on high fever strain and at high fever heat. Every living creature there held life as of no account and was demented with a passionate readiness to sacrifice it. As a whirlpool of boiling waters has a centre point, so all this raging circled round Defarge's wine-shop, and every human drop in the cauldron had a tendency to be sucked towards the vortex, where Defarge himself, already begrimed with gunpowder and sweat, issued orders, issued arms, thrust this man back, dragged this man forward, disarmed one to arm another, laboured and strove in the thickest of the uproar. "'Keep near to me, Jacques Three, cried Defarge, "'and do you, Jacques One and Two, separate "'and put yourselves at the head of as many of these patriots as you can. "'Where is my wife?' "'Eh, well, here you see me,' said Madame, "'composed as ever, but not knitting to-day. "'Madame's resolute right hand was occupied with an axe in place of the usual soft implements, and in her girdle were a pistol and a cruel knife. "'Where do you go, my wife?' "'I go,' said Madame, "'with you at present. You shall see me at the head of women by and by.' "'Come, then,' said Defarge, in a resounding voice. "'Patriots and friends, we are ready. The Bastille!' with a roar that sounded as if all the breath in France had been shaped into the detested word, the living sea rose, wave on wave, depth on depth, and overflowed the city to that 
point, alarm bells ringing, drums beating, the sea raging and thundering on its new beach, the attack began. Deep ditches, double drawbridge, massive stone walls, eight great towers, cannon, muskets, fire and smoke, through the fire and through the smoke, in the fire and in the smoke, for the sea cast him up against a cannon, and on the instant he became a cannoneer. Defarge of the wine-shop worked like a manful soldier, two fierce hours." deep ditch single drawbridge massive stone walls eight great towers cannon muskets fire and smoke one drawbridge down work comrades all work work jacques one jacques two jacques one thousand jacques two thousand jacques five and twenty thousand in the name of all the angels or the devils which you prefer work Thus Defarge of the wine-shop, still at his gun, which had long grown hot. "'To me, women!' cried Madame, his wife. "'What? We can kill as well as the men when the place is taken!' And to her, with a shrill, thirsty cry, trooping women variously armed, but all armed alike in hunger and revenge." cannon, muskets, fire, and smoke, but still the deep ditch, the single drawbridge, the massive stone walls, and the eight great towers, slight displacements of the raging sea made by the falling wounded, flashing weapons, blazing torches, smoking wagon-loads of wet straw, hard work at neighbouring barricades, in all directions, shrieks, volleys, execrations, bravery without Dint, boom, smash, and rattle, and the furious sounding of the living sea, but still the deep ditch, and the single drawbridge, and the massive stone walls, and the eight great towers, and still Defarge of the wine-shop at his gun, grown doubly hot by the service of four fierce hours." a white flag from within the fortress and the parley this dimly perceptible through the raging storm nothing audible in it suddenly the sea rose immeasurably wider and higher and swept the farge of the wine-shop over the lowered drawbridge past the massive stone outer walls in among the eight great towers surrendered so resistless was the force of the ocean bearing him on that even to draw his breath or turn his head was as impracticable as if he had been struggling in the surf at the south sea until he was landed in the outer courtyard of the bastille there against an angle of a wall he made a struggle to look about him jacques three was nearly at his side madame defarge still heading some of her women was visible in the inner distance and her knife was in her hand everywhere was tumult exultation deafening and maniacal bewilderment astounding noise yet furious dumb show the prisoners the records the secret cells the instruments of torture the prisoners 
of all these cries and ten thousand incoherences the prisoners was the cry most taken up by the sea that rushed in as if there were an eternity of people as well as of time and space when the foremost billows rolled past bearing the prison officers with them and threatening them all with instant death if any secret nook remained undisclosed defarge laid his strong hand on the breast of one one of these men, a man with a grey head, who had a lighted torch in his hand, separated him from the rest, and got him between himself and the wall. "'Show me the North Tower,' said Defarge. "'Quick!' "'I will faithfully,' replied the man, "'if you will come with me. But there is no one there.' "'What is the meaning of one hundred and five North Tower?' asked Defarge. "'Quick!' "'The meaning, monsieur?' Does it mean a captive, or a place of captivity, or do you mean that I shall strike you dead? Kill him, croaked Jacques Three, who had come close up. Monsieur, it is a cell. Show it to me. Pass this way, then. Jacques Three, with his usual craving on him, and evidently disappointed by the dialogue taking a turn that did not seem to promise bloodshed, held by Defarge's arm as he held by the turnkeys. Their three heads had been close together during this brief disclosure, and it had been as much as they could do to hear one another, even then. So tremendous was the noise of the living ocean, in its eruption into the fortress, and its inundation of the courts and passages and staircases all around outside too it beat the walls with a deep hoarse roar from which occasionally some partial shouts of tumult broke and leaped into the air like spray through gloomy vaults where the light of day had never shone past hideous doors of dark dens and cages down cavernous flights of steps and again up steep rugged ascents of stone and brick more like dry waterfalls than staircases defarge the turnkey and jacques three linked hand and arm went with all the speed they could make here and there, especially at first, the inundation started on them and swept by. But when they had done descending, and were winding and climbing up a tower, they were alone. Hemmed in here by the massive thickness of walls and arches, the storm within the fortress and without was only audible to them in a dull, subdued way, as if the noise out of which they had come had almost destroyed their sense of hearing. The turnkey stopped at a low door, put a key in a clashing lock, swung the door slowly open, and said, as they all bent their heads and passed in, One hundred and five North Tower. There was a small, heavily grated, unglazed window, high in the wall, with a stone screen before it, so that the sky could be only seen by stooping low and looking up. There was a small chimney, heavily barred across, a few feet within. There was a heap of old feathery wood ashes on the hearth. There was a stool, and table, and a straw bed. There were the four blackened walls and a rusty iron ring in one of them. "'Pass that torch slowly along these walls, that I may see them,' said Defarge to the turnkey. 
The man obeyed, and Defarge followed the light closely with his eyes. Stop! Look here, Jacques! A. M. croaked Jacques Three as he read greedily. Alexandre Manette, said Defarge in his ear, following the letters with his swart forefinger, deeply ingrained with gunpowder. And here he wrote, a poor physician, and it was he, without doubt, who scratched a calendar on this stone. What is that in your hand? A crowbar? Give it me. He had still the linstock of his gun in his own hand. He made a sudden exchange of the two instruments, and turning on the worm-eaten stool and table, beat them to pieces in a few blows. "'Hold the light higher,' he said wrathfully to the turnkey. "'Look among those fragments with care, Jacques, and see, here is my knife,' throwing it to him. "'Rip open that bed and search the straw. Hold the light higher, you!' With a menacing look at the turnkey, he crawled upon the hearth, and peering up the chimney, struck and prized at its sides with the crowbar, and worked at the iron grating across it. In a few minutes some mortar and dust came dropping down, which he averted his face to avoid, and in it, and in the old wood ashes, and in a crevice in the chimney, into which his weapon had slipped or wrought itself, he groped with a cautious touch. "'Nothing in the wood and nothing in the straw, Jacques?' "'Nothing.' "'Let us collect them together, in the middle of the cell. So, light them, you!' The turnkey fired the little pile, which blazed high and hot. Stooping again to come out at the low-arched door, they left it burning, and retraced their way to the courtyard, seeming to recover their sense of hearing as they came down, until they were in the raging flood once more. They found it surging and tossing, in quest of Defarge himself. Saint Antoine was clamorous to have its wine-shop keeper foremost in the guard upon the governor who had defended the Bastille and shot the people. Otherwise the governor would not be marched to the Hôtel de Ville for judgment, otherwise the governor would escape, and the people's blood, suddenly of some value after many years of worthlessness, be unavenged. In the howling universe of passion and contention that seemed to encompass this grim old officer, conspicuous in his grey coat and red decoration, there was but one quite steady figure, and that was a woman's. "'See, there is my husband!' she cried, pointing him out. "'See, Defarge!' She stood immovable close to the grim old officer, and remained immovable close to him, remained immovable close to him through the streets, as Defarge and the rest bore him along, remained immovable close to him when he was got near his destination, and began to be struck at from behind, remained immovable close to him when the long-gathering rain of stabs and blows fell heavy, was so close to him when he dropped dead under it, that, suddenly animated, she put her foot upon his neck, and with her cruel knife, long ready, hewed off his head. The hour was come when Saint Antoine was to execute his horrible idea of hoisting up men for lamps to show what he could be and do. Saint Antoine's blood was up, and the blood of tyranny and domination by the iron hand was down. 
down on the steps of the hotel de ville where the governor's body lay down on the sole of the shoe of madame defarge where she had trodden on the body to steady it for mutilation lower the lamp yonder cried saint antoine after glaring round for a new means of death here is one of his soldiers to be left on guard the swigging sentinel was posted and the sea rushed on the sea of black and threatening waters and of destructive upheaving of wave against wave whose depths were yet unfathomed and whose forces were yet unknown the remorseless sea of turbulently swaying shapes voices of vengeance and faces hardened in the furnaces of suffering until the touch of pity could make no mark on them but in the ocean of faces where every fierce and furious expression was in vivid life there were two groups of faces each seven in number so fixedly contrasting with the rest that never did sea roll which bore more memorable wrecks with it seven faces of prisoners suddenly released by the storm that had burst their tomb were carried high overhead all scared all lost all wondering and amazed as if the last day were come and those who rejoiced around them were lost spirits other seven faces there were carried higher seven dead faces whose drooping eyelids and half-seen eyes awaited the last day impassive faces yet with a suspended not an abolished expression on them faces rather in a fearful pause as having yet to raise the dropped lids of the eyes and bear witness with the bloodless lips thou didst it seven prisoners released seven gory heads on pikes the keys of the accursed fortress of the eight strong towers some discovered letters and other memorials of prisoners of old time long dead of broken hearts such and such like the loudly echoing footsteps of saint antoine escort through the paris streets in mid-july one thousand seven hundred and eighty-nine now heaven defeat the fancy of lucy darnay and keep these feet far out of her life for they are headlong mad and dangerous and in the years so long after the breaking of the cask at defarge's wine-shop door they are not easily purified when once stained red end of book two chapter twenty one Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book 2, Chapter 22 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 22. The Sea Still Rises Haggard Saint-Antoine had had only one exultant week in which to soften his modicum of hard and bitter bread to such extent as he could, with the relish of fraternal embraces and congratulations, when Madame Defarge sat at her counter, as usual, presiding over the customers. 
Madame Defarge wore no rose in her head, for the great brotherhood of spies had become, even in one short week, extremely chary of trusting themselves to the saint's mercies. The lamps across his streets had a portentously elastic swing with them. Madame Defarge, with her arms folded, sat in the morning light and heat, contemplating the wine-shop and the street. In both there were several knots of loungers, squalid and miserable, but now with a manifest sense of power enthroned on their distress. The raggedest nightcap, awry on the wretchedest head, had this crooked significance in it. I know how hard it has grown for me, the wearer of this, to support life in myself. But do you know how easy it has grown for me, the wearer of this, to destroy life in you? Every lean, bare arm that had been without work before had this work always ready for it now, that it could strike. The fingers of the knitting women were vicious with the experience that they could tear. There was a change in the appearance of Saint Antoine. The image had been hammering into this for hundreds of years, and the last finishing blows had told mightily on the expression. Madame Defarge sat observing it, with such suppressed approval as was to be desired in the leader of the Saint Antoine women. One of her sisterhood knitted beside her, the short, rather plump wife of a starved grocer, and the mother of two children withal, this lieutenant had already earned the complimentary name of The Vengeance. Hark! said The Vengeance. Listen, then, who comes? As if a train of powder laid from the outermost bound of Saint-Antoine quarter to the wine-shop door had been suddenly fired, a fast-spreading murmur came rushing along. "'It is Defarge,' said Madame. "'Silence, patriots!' Defarge came in breathless, pulled off a red cap he wore, and looked around him. "'Listen everywhere,' said Madame again. "'Listen to him!' Defarge stood panting against a background of eager eyes and open mouths formed outside the door all those within the wine-shop had sprung to their feet say then my husband what is it news from the other world how then cried madame contemptuously the other world does everybody here recall old foulon who told the famished people that they might eat grass and who died and went to hell everybody from all throats the news is of him he is among us among us from the universal throat again and dead not dead he feared us so much and with reason that he caused himself to be represented as dead and had a grand mock funeral but they have found him alive hiding in the country and have brought him in i have seen him but now on his way to the hotel de ville a prisoner i have said that he had reason to fear us say all had he reason wretched old sinner of more than threescore years and ten if he had never known it yet he would have known it in his heart of hearts if he could have heard the answering cry a moment of profound silence followed 
Defarge and his wife looked steadfastly at one another. The vengeance stooped, and the jar of a drum was heard as she moved it at her feet behind the counter. "'Patriots!' said Defarge in a determined voice. "'Are we ready?' Instantly Madame Defarge's knife was in her girdle. The drum was beating in the streets, as if it and a drummer had flown together by magic, and the vengeance, uttering terrific shrieks and flinging her arms about her head like all the forty furies at once, was tearing from house to house, rousing the women.' the men were terrible in the bloody-minded anger with which they looked from windows caught up what arms they had and came pouring out down into the streets but the women were a sight to chill the boldest from such household occupations as their bare poverty yielded from their children from their aged and their sick crouching on the bare ground famished and naked they ran out with streaming hair urging one another and themselves to madness with the wildest cries and actions. Villain Foulon taken my sister, old Foulon taken my mother, miscreant Foulon taken my daughter. Then a score of others ran into the midst of these, beating their breasts, tearing their hair, and screaming, Foulon alive! Foulon, who told the starving people they might eat grass. Foulon, who told my old father that he might eat grass when I had no bread to give him. Foulon, who told my baby it might suck grass when these breasts were dry with want. O mother of God, this Foulon! O heaven, our suffering! Hear me, my dead baby and my withered father, I swear on my knees, on these stones, to avenge you on Foulon. Husbands and brothers and young men, give us the blood of Foulon, give us the head of Foulon, give us the heart of Foulon, give us the body and soul of Foulon. Rend Foulon to pieces and dig him into the ground that grass may grow from him. With these cries, numbers of the women, lashed into blind frenzy, whirled about, striking and tearing at their own friends, until they dropped into a passionate swoon, and were only saved by the men belonging to them from being trampled underfoot. Nevertheless, not a moment was lost, not a moment. This Foulon was at the Hôtel de Ville, and might be loosed, never, if Saint-Antoine knew his own sufferings, insults, and wrongs. Armed men and women flocked out of the quarter so fast, and drew even these last dregs after them with such a force of suction, that within a quarter of an hour there was not a human creature in Saint-Antoine's bosom, but a few old crones, and the wailing children. No, they were all by that time choking the hall of examination, where this old man, ugly and wicked, was, and overflowing into the adjacent open space and streets. The Defarges, husband and wife, the Vengeance, and Jacques Three were in the first press, and at no great distance from him in the hall. 
"'See!' cried Madame, pointing with her knife. "'See the old villain bound with ropes. "'That was well done to tie a bunch of grass upon his back. "'Ha, <laughs> ha! That was well done. Let him eat it now!' Madame put her knife under her arm and clapped her hands as at a play. The people immediately behind Madame Defarge, explaining the cause of her satisfaction to those behind them, and those again explaining to others, and those to others, the neighbouring streets resounded with the clapping of hands. Similarly, during two or three hours of drawl, and the winnowing of many bushels of words, Madame Defarge's frequent expressions of impatience were taken up with marvellous quickness at a distance the more readily because certain men who had by some wonderful exercise of agility climbed up the external architecture to look in from the windows knew madame defarge well and acted as a telegraph between her and the crowd outside the building at length the sun rose so high that it struck a kindly ray as of hope or protection directly down upon the old prisoner's head the favour was too much to bear in an instant the barrier of dust and chaff that had stood surprisingly long went to the winds and saint antoine had got him it was known directly to the furthest confines of the crowd defarge had but sprung over a railing and a table and folded the miserable wretch in a deadly embrace madame defarge had but followed and turned her hand in one of the ropes with which he was tied the vengeance and jacques three were not yet up with them and the men at the windows had not yet swooped into the hall like birds of prey from their high perches when the cry seemed to go up all over the city bring him out bring him to the lamp down and up and head foremost on the steps of the building now on his knees now on his feet now on his back dragged and struck at and stifled by the bunches of grass and straw that were thrust into his face by hundreds of hands torn bruised panting bleeding yet always entreating and beseeching for mercy now full of vehement agony of action with a small clear space about him as the people drew one another back that they might see now a log of dead wood drawn through a forest of legs he was hauled to the nearest street corner where one of the fatal lamps swung and there madame defarge let him go as a cat might have done to a mouse and silently and composedly looked at him while they made ready and while he besought her the women passionately screeching at him all the time and the men sternly calling out to have him killed with grass in his mouth once he went aloft and the rope broke and they caught him shrieking twice he went aloft and the rope broke and they caught him shrieking then the rope was merciful and held him and his head was soon upon a pike with grass enough in the mouth for all saint antoine to dance at the sight of 
nor was this the end of the day's bad work for st antoine so shouted and danced his angry blood up that it boiled again on hearing when the day closed in that the son-in-law of the dispatched another of the people's enemies and insulters was coming into paris under a guard five hundred strong in cavalry alone st antoine wrote his crimes on flaring sheets of paper seized him would have torn him out of the breast of an army to bear foulon company set his head and heart on pikes and carried the three spoils of the day in wolf procession through the streets not before dark night did the men and women come back to the children wailing and breadless then the miserable baker's shops were beset by long files of them patiently waiting to buy bad bread and while they waited with stomachs faint and empty they beguiled the time by embracing one another on the triumphs of the day and achieving them again in gossip gradually these strings of ragged people shortened and frayed away and then poor lights began to shine in high windows and slender fires were made in the streets at which neighbours cooked in common afterwards supping at their doors scanty and insufficient suppers those and innocent of meat as of most other sauce to wretched bread yet human fellowship infused some nourishment into the flinty viands and struck some sparks of cheerfulness out of them fathers and mothers who had had their full share in the worst of the day played gently with their meagre children and lovers with such a world around them and before them loved and hoped it was almost morning when defarge's wine-shop parted with its last knot of customers and monsieur defarge said to madame his wife in husky tones while fastening the door at last it is come my dear eh well returned madame almost st antoine slept the defarges slept even the vengeance slept with her starved grocer and the drum was at rest the drums was the only voice in st antoine that blood and hurry had not changed the vengeance as custodian of the drum could have wakened him up and had the same speech out of him as before the bastille fell or old foulon was seized not so with the hoarse tones of the men and women in st antoine's bosom end of book two chapter twenty two recording by paul adams www.yawnguy.com Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.